everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. We are 100% sponsor-based, which means that all the revenues we derive come from sponsorships. But I try to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically trying to choose those who have values well aligned to the values expressed on this show, like freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do is a few ad reads right here at the top of the show and then a few ad, ad reads in the middle. And I hope you won't skip them. I hope you'll take the time, listen and see what they have to offer, because again, these are hand selected sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Swan Private is a concierge financial services firm based in Los Angeles. Now, I've known the Swan team for years, and these guys are laser focused on the Bitcoin mission. They even have a zero tolerance policy for all shitcoining. Recently, their CEO, Corey Clipston, was instrumental in calling out many of these crypto scams right before they collapsed, saving a lot of people a lot of money in the process. Swan Private focuses on guiding high net worth individuals and businesses on all aspects of Bitcoin strategy, including buying, custodying, and market research. This concierge service provides you direct access to a private advisor by text, phone, or email. So go to swanprivate.com slash breedlove today to sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. I want to bring in my guest. I am absolutely pumped to hell about this. So without further ado, I want to welcome Robert Breedlove to my show. Robert, great to have you in the house. It is great to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolute honor. It really is. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I we were just talking off air. You know, I've been in Bitcoin heading <clears throat> almost six years now. And, um, you know, I've learned so much over my time in Bitcoin. But of course, you know, there's so much more to learn. Um, I try to keep up. I am a boomer, uh, but I listen to some of the talks that you give. And, you know, they are just they are out there, Robert. I don't know how else to say it. They are, they are to me, I'm only talking about me. Uh, I, I'm going to say are. this so you, you've got an idea. I left school at 15, zero qualifications, 20 odd years of my life. I drove trucks for a living. So, you know, I, I, I didn't have a, a background in finance, in law, in money, nothing. So when I came to Bitcoin, it was just a crazy phone call from a, a friend asking me what I knew about it. And I said, absolutely nothing at all. What the hell is it? That was where I was at in, in May, 20, um, May 2017. So what I've done over six years is just try to get in that rabbit hole, Robert, and learn as much as I can about it. And the reason I've got you on is because I say to my audience, what credibility have I got 
to talk to people about why they should buy Bitcoin. So I run my shows every Monday and every Thursday. But what I like to do is bring a guest on the show or run a short video clip and talk about it when I haven't got a guest to help my audience to see that it's not just me, the crazy Brit who is ranting about why people should uh, get off of zero. So I guess where we'll start, if it's OK with you, um, I'd really maybe like you to tell my audience a little bit about you and you know what you were up to before you discovered Bitcoin, maybe when you discovered it and the journey, really, Robert. I think we can fill an hour with that and then we're done. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but seriously, <laughs> you know, what, what were you up to before Bitcoin then? Yeah, I'll, I'll keep it really brief because I've shared it on other shows, but um, my background is in accounting and finance. Okay. Uh, master's degree in accounting and finance. I worked at an accounting firm in the United States, uh, Tennessee in the United States okay, for yep. a number of years. And then I was pretty much a career. I got out of accounting and went into private industry and I was basically a career CFO, um, mostly focused in technology. And then I started working for myself in 2000, late 2016, mm -hmm. early 2017. And uh, initially I was just CFO consulting. I didn't really know what I was going to be doing, but it was that decision to go and work for myself that gave me the time to start studying um, crypto really at the time, which yep. at the time it was crypto, right? I didn't know what, didn't know. Um, <laughs> the difference. <laughs> didn't know, didn't know, didn't know. Yep. So having gotten into crypto, I, I learned a lot about um, really what these technologies are. And I started to have this fundamental kind of look back into the history of money. I, okay. you know, I had this, this is before Bitcoin, actually. Um, I had and I've told this story before, so stop me if you've heard it, but I had found the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island back in 2005. <laughs> and so I'd already come to this conclusion that central banking was like the, the big problem in the world. And um, I didn't know what to do about it at the time when I had discovered the book. It didn't seem like there was a viable solution yep. to central banking. So I kind of just, you know, I, I sat with the idea for a while. I shared it with others. And then I eventually just kind of put it on an intellectual shelf for myself and moved on with life. And um, it wasn't until I started working for myself, like I said, in 16, 17, that I, I had this leisure time. You know, I had this, I'd liberated some, some time and attention for myself. And that is where, funny enough, I was Ethereum advertising the, the idea of smart contracts I don't recall exactly where I heard it first, but it was definitely through Ethereum. And then I was like, what the hell is a smart contract? Hmm. So I started researching that. And then I got into Nick Zabo's work yep. on smart contracts, which was written in the 90s. And basically that was it. That was my tumble into crypto. I was like, oh, smart contracts are going to be a really big deal. I started making allocations into the space. I didn't know. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just buying kind of the top market cap weighted crypto assets thinking that uh, these things had some utility in terms of this this smart contract value proposition. And that, you know, where, what I always say here is where my money went, my mind followed. And I started studying the assets that I owned. And that was the gateway for me going into the the rabbit hole of 
Bitcoin itself. And I think the further you go down that rabbit hole, the more narrowly focused on Bitcoin alone you become. Yep. And that's pretty much been my path. And then when I was operating, I'm sorry, that got me into Bitcoin. I ended up running a hedge fund in the space for a while. I was writing investor updates. I was also writing these long form research pieces. And the writing would become pop, had become popular through my Twitter following. And then I was getting invited on the podcast to talk about what I, what I had written. Yep. And podcast appearances became popular. And so I, the, the feedback I was getting from the market was more writing, more talking. And I, in November 2020, decided I would jump on the podcast bandwagon with by launching the What Is Money show. And um, at that time, it was just an idea. You know, I, I just wanted to, uh, inspired by Jordan Peterson to some extent here, where he had described yeah. how YouTube and podcasting had basically taken the bandwidth cost down to zero. So whereas in the you know 20th century top-down media model, you had very compressed airtime. You know, people had two to five minutes to try to give their whole spiel. Well, now in the digital age with podcasting, we have the opposite. We have unlimited airtime effectively. It's near zero cost to do what we're doing right now. And my philosophy on that was like, well, great. We have this vast space uh, to talk about big ideas. So let's give the ideas the room they need to breathe. Yeah. And so my, my pitch to Sailor was like, look, I want to have people on the show to just talk about this question, this seemingly enigmatic question, what is money? Kind of mysterious, kind of simple, but has a lot of answers, hard to pin down. And the differentiation on the show is going to be, we'll just talk about it as long as we need to talk about it. You know, we'll, it about we'll 10 hours, go... wasn't it? <laughs> well, it ended up being, I think so and I have 17 episodes together at around 25 hours of content. Um, oh, have I not? So yeah, it's a very, and, and that series, which, you know, I take very little credit for because Michael Saylor is um, probably one of the most eloquent people on the planet, uh, incredibly compelling speaker. And that series was just the uh, a catapult for the show. I've been approached by, I guess, thousands of people at this point. Yep. Uh, describing how that show, how that series, the Sailor series, was their introduction into the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And wow. as you know, this is a one-way street, right? Once people get into this, it's like getting unplugged from the matrix. You never look back. No, you don't. So would you say that, um, you know, the, the sailor thing sort of kicked the whole thing off then? I mean, when you when you just obviously you went you were in crypto and then, you know, you started going down the rabbit hole. You, you obviously read um, Creature from Jack and Ireland. I mean, that for me, that was a really heavy book. But boy, what an eye opener. It, it just absolutely screwed on my head reading that book. It really did. It made me question everything, as you rightly say. It makes you, you know, question the whole narrative. And, and it was just mind blowing for me. But was there was there a person or a bit of material that was maybe a catalyst for, whoa, this is Bitcoin? Or was it just a gentle, you know, progression as, as you walk through, you know, your time in the in No, I, I was fortunate to have purchased the Bitcoin standard, I think the day or the day after it came out. This was like yeah. April 2018. Yeah. 
Me too. April 2018. Yeah, 2018. Pretty sure. And I read it in a weekend. Like I read it in two days. So I read it basically the day, you know, the weekend it came out pretty much. Yeah. It was, I had read it by three days after its release, let's say. And that was probably the final piece for me that I, I knew the corruption of money was a systemic macro historical recurrent self-deception. Like, yeah. sorry, I'm throwing a lot of big words out. We're going to keep it simple today. That's a, no, no, you're okay. With Human that. beings are addicted to the printing of money was yep. kind of my conclusion. Like we keep thinking we can print money to solve problems, but it actually creates problems. Yep. And so I knew that was a real issue. I didn't know how we would disentangle ourselves from that. That was a creature from Jekyll Island that had sort of incepted that idea within me. Yep. And then when I get to the Bitcoin standard, I it was my first look into this unexplored domain for me of Austrian economics. Mm-hmm. And that's like, oh man, the, people have been talking about the origins of money. Like it's it's a rationalistic approach to economics. So this is the proper treatment for a social science. This is not, this is a bit of a rabbit hole to go into, but it's cool. Empir- empiricism doesn't work in the field of economics because as Mises said, we don't have constants, right? In natural sciences, water freezes at zero degrees centigrade. Right. That's a that's a constant. That's a yep. time invariant law that you can build a framework around. Well, there are no such constant relationships in the sphere of human action. There is no uh, there is no constancy, basically. So there you have to you have to use an entirely different framework of knowledge called rationalism rather than empiricism to explore. Um, to deduce these theorems about human action. So that was that was a real awakening for me. It's like, oh wow, there are people that have been thinking about this for many hundreds of years. It wasn't, you know, through safety and obviously got into the work of Mises, Rothbard, mm-hmm. Hayek, Hoppe, uh, Guido Holzman. Hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. All these Austrian that had written about this for for many many decades. Yep. And at that point. I would say I pretty much became full on, but just the recognition of this being the only innovation that perhaps will come out of this entire wave of, of technological change we've called crypto uh, in the same way that like when the internet emerged, there used to be a lot of talk about intranets, Yep. right? Corporations would have their own private internet. Yep. Uh, well, that's gone now, right? No one, no one has an intranet. The internet, the open network, devoured all the closed networks. And I view Bitcoin as something somewhat analogous. That you have Bitcoin is the internet of money. It is this open network, yep. universally accessible, transparent. Uh, nothing is concealed, right? It's just, it's just openness. Uh, no counterparty risk. Um. And then in these crypto assets, you have basically a copy and paste of Bitcoin's code in uh, to develop a closed network, some so something that's trying to provide a solution in either in a different market space or trying to compete directly with Bitcoin as money. And I just don't think that's going to work. I think money really is a winner-take-all market space. 
you know, when you consider that the value of money is its liquidity, is it, it's how many trading partners, how many people, how widely accepted it is hmm. uh, in this one definition of money, which again, there's a lot of definitions. Um, I think, I guess in a nutshell, you could say for the same economic reasons, we only have one analog gold. My thesis is that we end up, not my thesis, many Bitcoiners thesis, the Bitcoin maximalist thesis is that we end up with only one digital gold and that everything else is just noise, right? These are all, all these shit coins are, are analogous to intranets yep. and they're going to go the way of the dinosaur. Uh, and dino is actually a good analogy for them because uh, we describe a lot of these. This is the fundamental difference between Bitcoin and shitcoin. Bitcoin is decentralized. All shit coins are dinos decentralized in name only. only. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there may come a period, I don't know when, maybe 10 years from now, where the same way we look back on intranets today and say, can you believe people ever thought that was going to be a, a thing? And we laugh about it. Well, some people haven't even heard about it today. If I bring up the term intranet to someone in their 20s, they don't know what I'm talking about. Yep. I think the same sequence of events is going to play out related to Bitcoin that in maybe 10, 15, 20 years, We'll talk about shit coins and people will be like, what, what is that? <laughs> Never heard of that. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm old enough to remember, you know, the internet starting out and the squealing when it was trying to load a page and you were waiting for three minutes while the little dots went across and look where we are today. And, and you know, when the internet came out and again, I, I, I sometimes I can't get this out of what's stored in here, out of here fluently. But what, what, what I mean is we could not envisage the iphone you know all these app stores and everything you know on a phone you know we've got a computer we've got our banking we've got absolutely everything in our pocket these days that if i try to explain to people when i'm when i'm talking to them about bitcoin they are the layers on top of the internet and bitcoin uh, will be when i say will be it's just my own personal belief will be the the internet of money it will be the money of the world it will be the base layer it will be the bearer asset whatever you want to call it and then everything will be built on top of that just the same as what we had on the internet am i am i right there yeah, you're I spot on i mean the analogy i don't know that it's it's really quite factual actually if you understand how the in internet is constituted that it is this stack of open source protocols. Yeah. You know, most of us are f familiar with HTTP. Yep. Um, most of us have probably heard of TCP IP. These are all just open source for mediating the exchange of data without permission. That's all it is. You can build a website without permission. You can um, communicate with people without permission. It's this, this decentralized media paradigm effectively that the internet has ushered in and if you understand that right so the bitcoin i'm sorry so the internet has evolved organically in layers yeah uh that you could almost consider bitcoin to just be the latest evolutionary layer right on top of it it's instead <laughs> of being a, an open source protocol for mediating the exchange of data the genius of satoshi is that he has figured out a way to create one of these internet layers that is actually anchored into reality, anchored into energy, anchored into physical thermodynamic reality. 
and such that it is capable of mediating the exchange of economic value. So in the same way, we have the internet that lets us communicate without permission. Um, you know, obviously we're talking about the internet as a whole here. We're not talking about an application, like you can get censored off of Twitter or Facebook or whatever. We're talking about the internet as a whole, the entire protocol stack. Bitcoin sort of just slots in nicely right there on top and says, Hey, well, we have permissionless communications. We have this permissionless media paradigm. Well, what's the most important form of media in the world? I would argue it's the medium of exchange yep. that we call money. Yep. Uh, I think it's the most, you know, clearly it's the most valuable market space in the world. It's a technology that every human being and civilized society has to use. It's a technology that almost every human being in civilized society does not seem to understand. Hmm. And um, it's, it's incredible. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like a fusion, if you will, this, we have mathematics is one of our universal languages. It's given rise to this, uh, this incredible technology that we have today. This, what did Arthur Clark say that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yep. So all of these magical tools, like we're using one right now, I'm talking to you from across the world on a video call. Um, All of this is born from that natural organic market process and, uh, and born from mathematics ultimately like it. Math is the, a universal language. I think money is another, as I've described previously, we all need to use it. We think through it. We communicate through it. We have sayings about it, you know, don't tell me what you think. Show me what's in your portfolio. Put your money where your mouth is. Yep. Um, that that assertion was right on the money. You know, there's all these little um, aspects of our language that sort of betray how universal something like money is. And what has Bitcoin done? Well, it's it's fused them together. We fused mathematics and money into one network, one tool. Um, and it's fascinating in that we've, we've picked up, you could almost consider it like we've, we've gained all the best advantages that the internet has to offer. Kind of like this universal engine for permissionless exchange, right? I can send ideas and information anywhere in the world at the speed of light without asking anybody. And we've combined that with the economic properties of gold right? Something that is, uh, it's hard to come by. It, it requires a proof of work. It's difficult to counterfeit. Um, but the problem with gold, obviously, is that it was hard to move, hard to transport, hard to secure. But by, you know, the great word that Sailor has introduced to the world here, by dematerializing gold into the internet of money, you you get the and you discard the problems with both worlds. Because the problem with the internet is that when you send information, you're not actually sending it, right? You're just sending copies all over yep. the place. Yep. Well, if you just copy money, that doesn't work. It, yep. it dilutes, it inflates, it, it fails. Uh, the advantage of gold is that you can't double spend it or inflate it or counterfeit it. That's great. The problem with gold is it's hard to move. You can't move it or move it around the world like you can information. And then poof, what do we get? Bitcoin. 
can't print it. You can't counterfeit it. Rooted in reality, but it's pure, purely dematerialized. It's pure digital information. You can move it at the speed of light. You can carry it in your brain. You can carry it in hardware, in software. You can carry it in a circle of trust, any information bearing medium. So it's this, it's just a radical, really radical idea. And I think that's why, like with the emergence of the internet, people used to call it the information superhighway, you know, <laughs> or it's like a library on, on a keyboard, things like this. We, we use these strange analogies in an attempt to describe a tool that just does not fit our prior worldview. Mm. And that to me indicates how paradigmatic Bitcoin is. Like it's an entirely new thing. So what do we do? We can't describe the thing. So we start to analogize it to all these older things that we're familiar with. It's digital gold. It's the internet of money. It's, uh, you know, I, I go way back and I call it inviolable property, right? We've been talking about inviolable private property since at least the year 1215 when King John signed the Magna Carta. Well, I think Bitcoin is the closest instantiation of that principle that we've ever had. See, that's mind blowing. Um, that's just mind blowing. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it. Legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. <laughs> and I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Masterworks. Masterworks gives you access to the fine art market at more affordable price points. They do this by offering you fractional shares in their $500 million portfolio of fine art. Now, fine art is an alternative asset class, and historically, it's been a great performer and a really good hedge against inflation. Most investors typically hold anywhere from 2 to 10% of their assets in an asset like fine art. To sign up or learn more, go to masterworks.com and use promo code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. 
Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. So I guess if I can interject for a minute, it leads me to the question, why can't, why don't more clever people get this? It's, you know, I mean... Let me, let me just talk to you about the, the, the conference in you know Pacific Bitcoin. I mean, I'm working my way through that uh, right now. And um, Corey said something really interesting about, you know, the battle that we've got going on right now to, to, to get the 10%. You know, talk around that, what you've just said and around the fact that, you know, and I just said, you know, why don't more people see it? Um, you know, and here we are in a battle now because we've got to try... I can't quite quantify that. I said this to you earlier. I can take it in my brain and I can't get it fluently out of my flipping mouth. But you understand what I'm trying to say. Corey said there's a battle going on and we've got to get this adoption. We've got to get this 10 percent. Or did he say a 100? No, um, 10 million Americans, was it? They want 10 million U.S. Bitcoiners. Yeah. 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 That's what we're yeah, looking so, for. So, yeah, that's a great question. Um you know, so Corey and I, we both we both had our thinking influenced by Nassim Taleb. I think we've both read his entire set of books, uh, The Inserto. I've read all of them once. I've read a couple of them twice. Um, I think Corey's done the same. And one of the one of the novel concepts that Taleb introduces in his book is called the minority rule. Yep. And I think that's what and I'm not going to get into it, but let's just say that at a certain level of adoption, if the preferences of a minority are strong and that the minority is not willing to bend, and let's say the majority has less strong preferences, they're they're more fluid, they're more more tolerant, mm. that you can reach a very low level of adoption and it will flip the whole cohort. So there, there's a number of examples Taleb gives, but um, the numbers can be very small. Like if you get to 4% adoption, um, they, they give the example of like, I think Taleb gives this example. There's roughly 4% of people that demand halal meat. Yeah. Uh, That's the UK, halal. isn't it? I think this is in the UK, UK actually, yeah. this example, yeah, is, right? Yeah. Only 4% of people actually want it, but the other 96% of people are somewhat indifferent to whether it's halal or not. Yep. Well, you, when you work it out, it's like 96 or 97% of the meat on shelves is halal because the preferences of that minority are strong and they are sufficiently obstinate that they flip the majority. So anyways, that's you could read about that. It's called the minority rule, but I think that's where Corey's building this idea of recruiting 10 million US Bitcoiners that... If you get Bitcoin into the hands of that many people that you could develop a similarly obstinate and intransigent minority, this is a, a group of people that won't change their ways, right? This is, uh, you know, this is the rigidity you see in Bitcoin maximalist even, right? Right. They're just very, you're not, they're single, single focus, laser focus, not going to change them. That's the type 
of cohort you want to create. And you only need, again, like 4% of a population to flip the whole thing. And, and so, that's, not, that's not, sorry to interrupt, that's not even a tipping point or anything like that, is it? You know, we talk of tipping point, critical mass. Is there, is there an, an element of critical mass tipping point in that in that small percentage? If they well, there is. When I, when I say flipping, that's what I mean, is there is some inflection point. And it, again... Like you would think intuitively, like, okay, we want, the goal is mass adoption. Your intuition might tell you, okay, well, we need probably like 51% of people yeah. to use this thing to get mass adoption. That's a simple majority, right? Yep. But that's not at all correct. Like you actually have to go down this somewhat non-intuitive intellectual path. Like again, study the minority rule. I forget which book. It's either in Black Swan or Anti-Fragile. I think he okay. writes about the minority rule. I could be wrong about that. But you really just need 4%, right? You need 4% of people that really want to hold a thing and they won't let go of it no matter what. And then you can basically induce the, the less obstinate majority to adopt uh, your path. So, you know... I'm well aligned with Swan. I, I work on this mission with them. They're a big sponsor on the show. I speak at their events. Yeah. Um, I've become increasingly persuaded by the Bitcoin, not shitcoin narrative. Uh, I initially was much more, you know, everyone do whatever they want. I don't care. I'll see you in the marketplace and bet against you. That's fine. It's Darwinian. But they're especially over the past year, right? We've had this crypto, one crypto catastrophe. I want to say something. I want to say something, Robert, before you go into that. One of my one of my questions or or, or things I wanted to point you to was what you said at Pacific Bitcoin. And you said, you know, I thought toxic, you were talking about toxic maxes. And then you quickly realized, you know, what the toxic maxes had done and how they'd save people with their life savings and everything else. Talk to the audience a little bit about that because I found that fascinating. You were talking to yeah, that's where I'm going. It. Actually, is the just the utility of toxicity. Um, mm. It's not, and maybe this just has to do with different cultures coming together and under one umbrella, right? Which is Bitcoin itself. And Bitcoin's it has its own emergent culture, but initially, these norms of, you know making fun of people online and calling it like, it just seemed like it's not something that I would normally participate in. I wouldn't yep. normally go online to, to try and add homonym attack someone or call them names. Uh, yet in retrospect, I've seen how effective it's been, right? It's almost like a self-regulatory measurement or, or, or mechanism rather that since crypto is an unregulated space, right? There's a bunch of bullshit going on. Yep. Yep that this cultural dynamic has emerged of toxicity that's actually like calling out the bullshit so it's like a self-regulating marketplace in a way in a way um and so that i i guess i just did not see that initially and i've become much more attuned to the the utility of toxicity over time okay and um you know you're asking earlier why people don't get this big idea um you know, it's it's the proof of work element. It's it, not that proof of work is hard, makes it hard to understand, which maybe it does to some extent, but there is a proof of work necessary for 
people that seek to understand Bitcoin, like you've got yeah. to put in the hours, you've got to yeah. do the work, you know, the, the traditional number floating around is 100 hours of reading or listening or whatever your preferred method, method of media consumption is. And I think there's a lot of truth to that because again, this thing has emerged, it's a prolific idea, right? It's emerged from outside most of our worldviews, yeah. right? Considering, and the, this is the namesake of the show, what is money? I think mm -hmm. most people, like the vast majority of people don't know. I would, you know, even putting myself in this category, I'm not going to claim to know what money is. It's actually a very complicated question to answer, has a lot of answers. Uh, but it is that process of pursuing answers to that question that has been so enlightening. And I guess when we look out into the world and say, why don't more people get this? Why don't more smart, clever people get this? It's like, well, um, and I think Sailor made this point at one point that there's, there's a certain rate at which a really huge idea can permeate society, can permeate the collective consciousness because each node in that network, each individual has to do the work. Yeah. You have to put in the hours, right? Again, if it's a hundred hours per person, how many people have studied Bitcoin for a hundred hours in the world? Probably yeah, as many Bitcoin maximalists as there are. It's probably a good proxy. I don't think anyone that's studied Bitcoin for 100 hours has not trended towards becoming a maximalist. Well, Preston said when he was on my show, and he, he said it so well, he said, um, um, learning about Bitcoin for most people is just simply an inconvenience. And, mm -hmm. and therein lies no proof of work. You know, no belief in it. No deep rooted understanding of where this thing is yep. going. Inconvenient because they don't understand the why, hmm. right? If you yeah. if you live, especially in the Western world, and you can go and open a bank in a bank account in a couple of hours, and your property is not getting confiscated, uh, you know, every time the dic a new dictator comes into power or something like that, you take a lot of these things for granted. Yes, and. This is why I try to focus a lot of my work on that why, right? Really understanding the principles of life, liberty, property, freedom, truth, sovereignty, value. You know, the things that really constitute who we are and what we do. Yeah. Um, you know, that it, it's an attempt to educate people about the more fundamental nature of socioeconomic reality. Uh, and it's again, akin to being unplugged from the matrix, because once you, once you start to see through the money or realize that the money is illusory, then it calls into question all these other facets of reality that you may have taken for granted before and makes you question what else might be an illusion. And, you know, it's important, right? It's important we have these conversations. It's important yep. that we have this decentralized media paradigm. This is propelling shifts in global consciousness and whatnot. However, I don't think that our educational efforts, this explicit educational content, and I say this as a producer of said content and yeah. a believer in how important it is, yeah. I don't think it can hold a candle to what government actually does in terms of education. Every time a government inflates a fiat currency or seizes property or goes to war or is... Uh, engulfed in some corruption scandal, like all of this pain that's being produced from these uh, socioeconomic 
pathologies, right, or problems, the pain yep. that real people feel in their real lives in terms of eating, drinking, sleeping, you know, like cost of living, like they, people actually feeling the consequences of corrupt money and, and viable property in the world. That is the most educational force. Mm. I always try to distill all of that down into the phrase that pain is information. It's, it's, you know, you touch the hot stove. It doesn't matter if your mom told you not to. It doesn't matter if you read about how hot stoves are and how bad it hurts. It's not until you touch it that you actually change your behavior, right? You really absorb the lesson in a tactile, indisputable, inarguable kind of way. Like you feel it. And so I think the same is true in the economics domain. It's like we can talk about all the problems of corrupt money and when you violate property, how it creates all of these second order downstream consequences, both, you know, well, politically, economically, psychologically, sociologically, like there's all these negative consequences. But, you know, we could talk about that, talk, 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 talk. And it gives people some framework, perhaps, to understand and interpret the world. But, but it's they still not got to until, put their hand on the stove, haven't they? Not until you live through a currency collapse or you yeah. have you are a victim of eminent domain or some other form of, of government uh, intervention or oppression that you really, in your bones, understand the value proposition of Bitcoin. Wow. That's profound enough. But it's so true, isn't it? When you when you think about it, you know, we in the West take it for granted. I mean, I, I you know, I, I keep my ears to the ground. I learn what I can. And you hear about Venezuela and um, in all these countries where, you know, there are these, I think somebody said billion dollar notes just floating down the gutters because they're totally worthless and they buy nothing. I'm, I don't know if that is the correct analogy, you know, and sometimes I think the people around me that I'm trying to, my loved ones that I'm trying to say, look, something's broken. You need to sort of wake up and start to get your head around the fact that something's really wrong here and I can't see it going back. Mm. And they, they look at me as like I've gone mad. So, you know, the question that runs all the time is, what is the best way to, to orange peel somebody? And I, I don't know who said it. I don't think it was you. It might have been. But they said, meet them where they're at. Who said that mm. recently on a pod? Meet them where they're at or come, in other words, come at it from an angle that they can relate to. Yes. Yeah, well, I agree with this. So the importance of curating your message for your audience, right? You have meeting them where they're at, as, as you or someone else said, um, very important. So if we take that idea seriously, then I and my experiences and my perspective and my, the way I speak, the way I think I can only resonate with certain cohorts of people in the world, right? There's yeah. some people that are going to get what I have to say and get some value out of it. Maybe there's some people in the middle. They're like, sort of get it, sort of don't. Maybe they're not interested. There might be a lot of people that aren't interested, don't get it, or don't like what I have to say. Yep. Yeah. So if that's true, and we need to curate our message for our audience and meet people where they're at, then what we actually need is an army of educators, right? I can only reach so many people. There are people that you can reach that I can't reach and vice versa, and so on and so forth as we get further out into the world. So um, I hope to be one of the leaders in that effort, right? The What Is yep. Money show. I, I take no 
I'm not, we try to do some Bitcoin 101 content by that title, Bitcoin 101, but I tend to stay focused on what I am interested in, which is yeah. this deeper rabbit hole content of what are the implications of Bitcoin? What are the implications of inviolable private property? How do we reorganize ourselves in the wake of Satoshi's invention? These are huge question marks. So I love to wrestle with those ideas. And I, I hope that my hope is that there are people listening that have also been going down the rabbit hole and they're finding my content valuable or useful, uh, you know, hopefully helping them dive further into that rabbit hole. Yeah. And then they take the messages, lessons, whatever that they're gleaning from that, not just my show, but all the sources all the books they're reading, all the podcasts they're listening to, et cetera. And then they can assimilate that through their filter, right? And then they can go out and become a new node on this educational network yep. and say, hey, here's why Bitcoin matters. Here's how I see it. Here's how I've learned about it. Here's my path. And all of a sudden, by adding another node to this you know, distributed orange pilling network that we are, you're now reaching you're meeting more people where they're at because that individual can now resonate with more audience that no one else could yeah right so it's a, it's a step-by-step -step incremental educational effort that i think really drives the the idea the proliferation of the idea that is bitcoin around the world and you know the idea that's all well and good all the ideas and all the orange bright orange future discussion we have but at the bottom of all of it, in my view, is the big why, right? Why, 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 why this tool? Why is it important? Who is it serving? How is it serving them? And that is why I try to keep my sights set on human freedom, right? It's just yep. giving people this, it's justice, man. It's, you know, again, these are just words. But they're big words, right? Freedom, justice. What is justice? Profound words. Justice, people getting what they deserve. People getting what they deserve. If I could just put justice in that nutshell. What is property, man? Property is keeping what you earn. So it's keeping what you earn, not getting what you deserve. So then property is justice. Hmm. And so what do we need in this world? We need justice. Hmm. What is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is property that cannot be separated from it's, its owner. It's truth. It is justice. It is truth. It is freedom. These are, again, words we're trying to use. We're trying to superimpose on this significant, profound invention of Satoshi, right? Where the six blind guys, if you've ever heard this analogy, describing the elephant, right? One guy is touching the tail, describing how the, the tail is thin. It's got a furry bush elephant's leg it's big like a tree trunk uh, uh another guy is describing his ear you know it's flat like a leaf they're all describing the same thing but all through their own particular viewpoints mm. and i feel like that's how that's what we're doing with bitcoin right it's truth it's justice it's freedom it's sovereignty um in reality we're just these silly apes on a planet that figured out language and hardware and software and now we invented the ultimate network for cooperation, right? It disincentivizes violence and coercion and incentivizes cooperation. So the profundity of that is very difficult to understate. And I think that is energizing the Bitcoin movement.
beautiful. I remember a phrase that I used to say a lot years ago. It was from a guy from the States. His name was George Zalicki. And he said, two men behind star behind prison bars. One saw mud, the other one saw stars. What they were looking at was exactly the same, but each of them chose to perceive it differently. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. So this is so so Robert, um, this obviously is a Bitcoin show. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking some heavy stuff here, but um so your take for people that are new or just got into Bitcoin or the type of people that follow my channel. And it's really interesting. Somebody jumped in my chat on, where are we, Thursday, Monday. And um, he, he, he put something in the chat and, and I went back and I, and I said something to him and he said, Brian, he said, I come to your show, he said, because I love the people. I love your community. If I want, to, if I want the deep stuff, he said, I just go off to one of the other channel, channels that I follow. And that... Mm gave me hope that maybe there is a place for what I do to try and help those. And, and you said it, you know, these layers of people you'll come in. I came in and I, and I found Andreas Antonopoulos back in 2017. That was it. And a, some crazy guy called Adam Meister, Bitcoin Meister. And they, they were the two. And then eventually the space grew and there was not much more, was there? And then the space mm. grew and like, there's just now a plethora of different information at all levels for people to go away and learn about this thing. But again, we're back to, if you don't know why you would do that, you know, the how won't work for you. We discussed this um, offline. So exactly. I'm, I'm looking at the clock. I'm mindful of your time. Let's start to pull it together for, for my audience from your point of view as to why they should go down that rabbit hole as noobs, as people that are just in and what they should be looking for and learning about maybe. Well, I mean, it's hard. You know, it's difficult to try and be prescriptive about why anyone should do anything really, but much that. less yep. study, study Bitcoin or the history of money. Um, but I guess if I'm, if I'm in the mode of making advice or giving advice or making suggestions that, you know, just stop and take a brief account of your, your world, right? Yes. Like consider how many times you have either transacted in money in the past 24 hours, or you've maybe thought through money, right? You're actually considering like, should I buy this or should I buy that? You're, you're using money as like a, a tool for cognitive fitness to the world, right? Yep. It's like, it's like language in that way. The only reason you and I can fit our minds together is because we're both running this open source software called English, right? I can make sounds out of my face hole and they can go into your ears <laughs> and, and backwards and forwards and we're communicating. Yep. Well, that's because we're, we're running the same software package. And so if you think language is important, for instance, well, then the language of value, which is money, I would argue is, I think it's equally important. I think money and language are of equal importance in the world. Um, so do I. In terms of cognitive software that humans use. Now, money obviously is different in that it's rooted in the real world, whereas language is not. We're kind of just making it up as we go. So... But the big why, I mean, we just, we sort of touched on it a minute ago, but I think most humans have this deeper intuition of, of justice, right? That we want to do good in the world. 
We want to be seen. Yep. We want to add value to the lives of those around us. We also want to add value to ourselves, right? We want to eat. We want to drink. We want to have shelter. We want to wear nice clothes. We want to travel. Um, so if you consider that what if you take those ideas seriously and you do want to do good in the world and you do want to see justice carried out and you do want to see you do believe in truth right you want your actions and beliefs to be ordered to what is true not what is not what you're told necessarily um then i think you should you should be really excited to go down this pathway because that's all we're doing, right? We're just, at, it's just questions. You're like, well, what is this? What is that? How does this work? How do we know who's written about it? You know, what, who are the, who are the counter arguments against this point and that point? And you're just, we're kind of like crowdsourcing the truth in a way, uh, establishing consensus on what actually works for individuals freely acting in the marketplace versus what is forced upon those individuals right now it doesn't people get twisted on this occasionally because they think well i'm not forced to use dollars right i can sell all my dollars for gold or whatever it may be but as a practical matter if you don't have at least in the u.s a u.s dollar bank account yeah and again myself included i have a u.s dollar bank account i also think the U.S. dollar is the biggest pyramid scheme in the world. Yep. So I am participating in and complicit with this pyramid scheme. I'm not calling you out. I am one as well. But to not understand that is to become enveloped in these illusions and this bullshit. And all of a sudden you're like, well, I voted blue and I, ha- I wave a rainbow flag and my gender is a table and... <laughs> you know, I'm woke and there's critical race theory that's solving racism. Like you literally start to believe all the bullshit. Yep. So if you want, maybe that's a good why. If you want a healthy immune system to ideological bullshit, then you should be excited to jump into the Bitcoin rabbit hole uh, and gain the capacity to see through illusions. And therefore, uh, the ability to order your life and yourself and build yourself around truth and on truth and how things actually work in the real world. Um, again, I, I hesitate to be prescriptive, but I don't know who wouldn't want that. Like who, yeah, no, who does not want their life ordered to truth? Who does not want to be informed by what is real? Um, it just seems like kind of a universal thing. So I hope, I hope this helps inspire people to look more closely at Bitcoin if they haven't. Wow. Crikey. Um, listen, what we've done for me was beautiful. I'm hoping the audience have taken something from that. Robert, just stay there for one moment. Uh, I love to pull shows together with quotes. I just love finding quotes. And I like to find a quote that might be relevant to Bitcoin. And I found this one. Not everyone is going to get it. Not everyone is going to agree. But what we have to do is stay the course. And I think if, if, if we can all listen to narratives, we can all take 
notice of the mainstream media machine that is out there. But when we start to understand that it's got its own role to play and it is spewing out what it wants to spew out for the masses to soak that up and then carry on with the culture of trusting in governments, etc., etc. And I think Bitcoin gives us an opt out, opt out of that. And I love this. You know, in my nearly six years in Bitcoin, the amount of people that have, let's use the word, come into Bitcoin, stayed for a little bit, disappeared, they've gone again. You know, they were in it because maybe number go up is what they wanted. I came in for number go up, for goodness sake. You know, but very quickly, when you get down the rabbit hole, you realize this is way, way, way bigger than number go up. This is me planting a tree that I'm not going to see grow but my descendants are and hopefully are going to live in a better world, a more freer world because of that. So, you know, I say to people, stay the course, you know, learn about this thing. Give it give the time up to learn about Bitcoin. No, I'm not saying you've got to, as Robert just said, people, I'm saying it is worth your time because we are. I will say this is not a rehearsal for anything. You know, this is life. This is it. Mm -hmm. So when you get to the end of your life, what do you want to look back on? A life full of soap operas or a life full of learning and enriching yourself and empowering others by being involved in what you just said, the, the greatest invention. Well, you didn't say it, but I know you, you, you feel that. And I do the greatest invention of humanity, I think. I think personally, I don't know how you feel, but I believe it's right up there with the printing press and everything else. Yeah, someone said that uh, the killer app of the internet is Bitcoin. <laughs> I think that pretty well sums it up. Um, and you know, yes, we all we all have a role to play. That's what we're saying here when we're, mm. and that's what I hope to be participating in is like just representing and embodying um, the embrace of that reality that you do have a role to play. You are a participant in history. You can help change it, even if it's just one little tiny corner. Right, one little itty bitty dent in the universe you're putting, so be it. You know, God bless it. Make that dent in the universe. Let your audience, or not even audience, just those your loved ones, right? Even if you're just signaling to your loved ones and inspiring them to go on their own journey of of truth and, and discovery, I think is worthwhile. And it's it gets back to that Nietzsche quote that I said to you offline: "He who has a why can bear any how." Yeah. So. You know, the why of Bitcoin, I, I don't know, is, is it justice, freedom, truths, like all these big, uh, highly valued, principled terms that we're relating to this, this innovation, this breakthrough. Um, that why is so important. <laughs> so if that why, if, if we have that why, then we can bear anyhow, we can do anything that we want. Uh, we can, I shouldn't say that, with a why this big, Bitcoiners can bear any how to bring about that reality. That's how I feel about this. Agree. And so it's not just number go up. Number go up does bring everyone in because the price is the instrument which commands the most attention in the world. Yep. But it's, you know, people come to make money, but they stay to remake the money, as, I, as I've said before or change the money or uh, fix the money, right? We say fix the money, fix the world a lot. And so it's this, yeah, number go up, brings attention in, but 
what we don't see, and this is one good way to define economics, is the study of unseen consequences or of hidden consequences. We see number go up, but what we don't see is that coercion is going down as a result. Mm -hmm. State power declines as Bitcoin number go up. And as coercion goes down, well, productivity goes up. Wealth creation goes up. The carrying capacity of the planet goes up. Our capacity to satisfy wants and solve problems goes up. Innovation goes up. Freedom, truth, and love go up as no! a result of Bitcoin succeeding. <laughs> so how is that not? I mean, it's the biggest why that I can possibly imagine. So no. I think this is driving and energizing the strong ideological dynamics we're seeing around Bitcoin, right? This, this, this counter force of cultural toxicity calling out all the bullshit. It's maybe we're just, we've touched the hot stove of truth basically, and it's coursing through us. And, uh, I don't know, some people maybe choose to try and veer off the path and shitcoin, And those people that veer off the path, the, the counter, agent the toxic cultural force attacks that right and destroys it or tries to destroy it with, with truth so it is powerful 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 stuff on multiple levels and um you know i hope to just continue to be uh someone that helps create a dent in the universe that's favorable to the proliferation of bitcoin well, I'm looking at my clock and I know you've got another appointment. So I'm going to say for me personally, that was fantastic. I know it was, um, you know, a conversation down on the normal ones that you have. And we did talk about this offline, but I think that was brilliant, Robert. Thank you. Um, I will say, you know, publicly, you inspire me immensely to learn thank more you. and more and dig deeper and deeper. So um, I can only say thank you for coming on the show. I'm going over here for a moment because... Um, normally, I say to my guests, where can people find you? People, unless I'm wrong, vida.page slash breedlove22 is all there, Robert, isn't it? Everything is over there. The links to everything, correct? Yeah, yeah. it's basically a link tree. And um, I'm, I'm an advisor, an investor in Vita. And they're, um, they have like a paid messaging thing. So it's kind of an interesting little startup, uh, Bitcoin-based Yep. So yeah, and then that's my Twitter profile that you've got up on the screen. You know, DMs are open. Go Let and follow him, people. Go and follow Robert. Uh, Robert, we're done. I'm going to let you go. Um, thank you, sir, for coming on. Um, I'll let you shoot yourself out of the green room. Um, I will shoot that DM over to you um, with that list we were discussing off air um, afterwards. Wonderful. But um, thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it.